On October the 19th, 1781, the British General Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown in the last decisive battle for American independence. At the surrender ceremony, the Buckinghamshire Light Infantry Band played a popular tune of the day called The World Upside Down, or The World Turned Upside Down. If buttercups buzzed after the bee, if boats were on land and churches on sea, if ponies rode men and grass ate the cows, and cats should be chased into holes by a mouse, if summer were spring and the other way around, then all the world would be turned upside down. It was a perfect song for the event. Great Britain was defeated by a gang of farmers, shopkeepers, and overdressed Frenchmen in a battle that gave the United States its independence. I begun this reflection with a brief history lesson because the title of the song can be found in a short passage from Acts 17. Luke tells us that Paul was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. The local politicians who ran the city began to get nervous because Paul was saying that Caesar was not the legitimate ruler of the empire. There was another king, the true king, named Jesus of Nazareth. So they tried to have Paul arrested for disturbing the peace. They said, these men have turned the world upside down. Every time the church confesses that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord, it stands the world as we know it on its head. This is one of the consequences of celebrating Eucharist every Sunday morning. This is not a 60-minute pep rally designed to empower us to make responsible consumer choices when we leave here. The gathering of the Church for Eucharist is an acknowledgment of the still dangerous truth that Christ is the world's only true Lord. In placing ourselves under his rule, we are saying that no country, no prime minister, no premier, no president, no governor, or other worldly power has the ultimate claim over our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the reasons why we call him Lord. That makes every gathering of the church and this monastery, we have eight of them, not only a political act, but a subversive one as well. This explains why we are a church of martyrs, why Paul and the apostles themselves, with the single exception of John, died violent deaths, why also a list of martyrs can be found in the Eucharistic prayer, and why entombed on the altar are the bones of a Spanish deacon named Vincent of Saragossa, martyred in the year 304, and why today in our Benedictine congregation we remember the 22 monks from Montserrat who were killed by the Marxists in Spain during the Civil War in 1936. If St. Paul was charged with turning the world upside down, and if so many of the apostles died violent deaths, it means they finally understood the basic lesson in the school of faith, as the disciple, or as the master, so too the disciple. Today's passage from Mark is one of those important lessons in their education. The Son of Man, Jesus tells them, is to be given over and put to death, and three days he will rise again. But it's early yet, and the disciples are only now beginning to understand that Jesus 
might just be the real thing, the promised Messiah. If so, then he will do what a Messiah is supposed to do. He will lead Israel to a new golden age, drive out the Romans, purify the temple, ascend to the throne of David. And they, the disciples themselves, will stand to gain power, prestige, and wealth, because to the victor and his friends belong the spoils. That is what they've been arguing about among themselves, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus. It tells us they are completely clueless, or rather, scheming. They will spend the next two chapters of Mark's gospel with this idea in their minds until the shocking truth begins to dawn. And when it does, their world too will be turned upside down. The crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, from any point of view you care to name, sympathetic or hostile, was bound to make Jesus look like a complete imposter. The Messiah was supposed to kill pagans, not be killed by them. In the minds of many, Good Friday was testimony that here, hanging on a cross, was just another failed Messiah in a long line of failed messiahs, all of them perfectly dead and buried, except for the singular fact that this messiah, having once been perfectly dead, is now perfectly alive. But this is all 15 chapters in the future. It may be hard to believe that the disciples were so dense, but the real mystery is that Jesus purposely chose these singular dim-witted men. If you wonder about the Lord's judgment, you cannot fail or fault his patience. In the school of the Lord's service, no apostle is left behind. And the lesson continues with a child as a teaching aid. In the ancient world, children had no official status or value. They were meant neither to be seen nor heard. To welcome a child as Christ himself turns everything upside down in the most radical of ways. Because Jesus is not merely saying how his followers should act, he is revealing something completely unexpected about the nature of God himself. Is God the great and powerful, the eternally self-sufficient divine wizard? Or is it God the humble and childlike who manages to slip unnoticed into the world beneath the theological radar and in the guise of a crucified Jew. For many, this is just another sleepy Sunday morning in September. Here and there, people are sitting down to a cinnamon roll frappuccino or a silky hazelnut latte, waiting for the NFL pregame warm-up. But here in Bridgeport, a small community of Benedictine monks, oblates, and friends are busy doing liturgy, and in the process, turning a world stripped of grace upside down. When we leave here, let's not try to turn it right side up again. <laughs>